0: This is Fit, Fun, and Frazzled, and I am your host, Nikki Lanigan, and on today's episode, we have Kelly McVeigh. Hi, Kelly. How are you? Hello, Nikki. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. I should also mention, Kelly is my cousin, and she also has her own podcast. Also, also carry on with Kelly that we will talk about a little later, too.
1: So, Nikki, do you remember, I'm going to interject here, the last yeah. time that we saw each other? It was it was in New York, right? Yes. In new York City. Yeah. You I was thinking of nothing. You and your husband and his brother came yep. to town for the weekend. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. We went to um,
0: the Yankees game, like the old Yankee Stadium. Was
1: right? it I think it was a new Yankee Stadium.
0: Oh, was it? I don't remember. Yeah. It was
1: a Yankee stadium.
0: Uh, yes. And then you showed us we wanted to see where um, John Lennon was shot, right?
1: Oh, we went to the Dakota. Okay. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. a good it was it was a good weekend. I do recall having a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. And that was yeah. that was it. That was many years ago. I know. I don't I think I
0: only had Elle. I don't even think I had Avery yet. It,
1: I think it was right after the wedding, right? Yeah. It's crazy. So maybe next decade we'll decade we'll see each other again. I know, right? I know.
0: <laughs> so how is everything going?
1: You were living in New York. I was living in New York, so I moved to New York in 2005, fall of 2005, to go back to college. I had quit college when I was younger, numerous times in life, moved to Southern California, and then decided to finish school. So I moved to New York specifically to go to New York University, finished my education, and started working at Wild Cornell Medical College, which is an academic medical institution in New York City and worked there in human resources for quite some time in a variety of different leadership roles. New York was great. Everything about New York was great. And then, you know, you're in New York a while and you sort of hit that stride that you're thinking I might get a little stagnant in life. What am I going to do with my life? Just, I guess maybe everybody goes through that. Yeah. So around 2015, so I had been in New York about 10 years by that point. I wasn't sure about my next steps. You know, what did I want to do with my career? Did I want to stay in human resources? So around the same time, I decided I was going to do this trip around the world. And I had done some traveling up until that point, but not a ton. So I started reading these articles about this woman who took a month off every year to do a trip around the world and said it was life changing. So I come up with this, the strategic plan that for my 45th birthday, which would have been the fall of 2016, I was going to take this dream trip and go to all the places that I had always wanted to go to in my life. So I'll give you a quick rundown just to understand how epic this trip was. Yeah. So I left New York. I flew to Dublin, Athens, Istanbul, and Cairo. I ended up. Like thirty hours in Dubai because you had to stop in Dubai to get to India. So I was in Dubai. I went to India to see the Taj Mahal in Agra, and then flew to Bangkok. From Bangkok, I flew to Siem Reap, Cambodia, Beijing to walk on the Great Wall of China. I ended in Hong Kong, and then I flew direct back to New York. So
0: that's awesome.
1: <laughs> it was. It was truly an epic adventure and there were reasons for some of the stops. So, you know, I grew up being told I was Irish. I don't know if you're told that you're Irish. Yes. Yeah. And I just got my DNA test and I have, you know, minuscule trace traces of Irish in me, less than 3%. So that's not true. Um, but I grew up thinking I was Irish. So I wanted to stop in Ireland and, and Athens, the ruins of Athens just always seemed mesmerizing to me. And, several people had told me that Istanbul changed their lives. So I thought I need a life change. Let's throw Istanbul in the mix. And obviously Cairo, you know, the pyramids and the space. And, and that was just something I had to do. Like I said, Dubai, I had to stop in Dubai because it was the best way to get across the country. And at the time I was an avid indoor cyclist at a chain called flywheel that is now defunct because of COVID. But at the time they had a branch in Dubai. So I literally stopped in Dubai just to go take two spin classes and a bar park, park. <laughs> That's and awesome, it, though. It, and to go to Starbucks. Like that was the <laughs> extent of what I did in Dubai. And I was completely fine with that. I wanted to go see sunrise at the Taj Mahal. So I did that. Um, there was a reason I went to Bangkok and I can't remember why at this point, but I fell in love with Bangkok when I was there and Siem Reap, which is a city in Cambodia. I had never even heard of, but I had asked a friend if I'm over there, I have a couple of days with one stop. And he said, you have to go to Siem Reap. So bam, threw that in there, wanted to walk on the great wall of China, which I did. And then Hong Kong was just a natural progression back to New York city. So it was literally this, epic, life-changing events. I started planning it for my, like I said, my 45th birthday because 45 was a, a monumental year. My father passed away when I was 20 years old and he was 45. So it was kind of an homage, a, a, a nod to him. And I, I really think my father would have liked the fact that I was doing this. So it was, it was very monumental to do it on my 45th birthday. And then leading up to this trip, I had a couple bizarre things happen in New York, and a few of my very close friends left New York right before I left. And then about a month before I left New York, the man that I had been dating, dating dating-ish, for eight years leading up to that died quite unexpectedly. He was riding his bicycle and was hit by a drunk driver, and that just sort of rocked my world to the core, and this trip that was supposed to be this monumental trip took on a whole different life. And I struggled getting through life until I, I mean the six weeks leading up to this trip, I, I really struggled with, but I got on the plane landed in Dublin and felt like I had this big awakening in life and Athens, which was my second stop. And, and keep in mind, I blogged about all of this and, journaled about all of this so these are all things that i have read since 2016 yeah by the time i got to athens i had made the decision that i was leaving new york it was that quick it was six days in i think to this trip that i started writing about the idea that it was time to leave new york and words started going through my mind and and i started writing these words down teach create inspire and and i didn't know what any of them meant but you know, sitting, my hotel, I was on the top floor and I could see the Parthenon from my balcony. And I would sit there at night and just watch the Parthenon and just decided that was it. I was done with New York. Which was an odd thing to have very early in this trip. I knew it would change my life, but I didn't really think it would click that quickly. Right. But then every stop, I healed a little bit more, felt a little bit stronger and those thoughts just kept percolating like it's time to go it's time to go um i ended up getting to bangkok and like i said i fell in love with bangkok for a lot of reasons but i felt very connected in bangkok and immediately knew my way around and and figured out the sky train and and figured out how to commute through this huge new york style city very quickly and i'm like okay maybe bangkok's it. And then I landed in Cambodia. Um, It was September 1st. And I actually just talked about this on my podcast today. So it's very fresh in my mind. (laughs) I landed in Cambodia on September 1st in the evening. It's a quick 15, 20 minute tuk-tuk ride from the airport to, to town and a tuk-tuk in Cambodia, which tuk-tuks are different in every city, tuk-tuks in Cambodia are these open-air carriages that are hooked to a motorbike. So you're you're driving through the streets and you've got the wind in your hair. You used to own a convertible, right? Yeah. So you get it. you mm-hmm. know, so The wind's in your hair and you're driving through these streets in Cambodia. And I took a breath and I just remember thinking, this is it. This is where I need to be. So I spent 72 hours in Cambodia. From there, I went to Beijing and had this monumental experience of of walking on the Great Wall of China, which is a story for a different time that would take up a whole podcast. (laughs) Stopped in um, in Hong Kong, in, in another New York style city. And on my birthday, so my birthday, September 11th, on my birthday, flew from Hong Kong to New York. So you cross the international date line. So my birthday ended up being like forty-five hours long. Oh. So I had the morning in Hong Kong. I have this fifteen-hour flight to New York. I get to New York at two o'clock on my birthday, having just left at like noon on my birthday. Yeah, and go out for the evening in New York City with friends to watch football and and a very unmonumental end to such this crazy life experience. I go into the office the next day, I maximized my time off. So I literally went to the office on a Friday, left the office and went right to the airport, flew back in on Sunday and went to the office Monday morning. Like I took advantage of every minute that I had of this vacation for 30 days. Walk into the office on Monday, And I had reported to the same woman for most of the time at the organization that I worked at. And she knew I was struggling before I left. So I walked past her office and she motions me in and we shut the door and she said, where's your head? So keep in mind, this is September 12th of 2016. Mm -hmm. She said, where's your head? I said, I'll be gone Mm -hmm. in a year. And she said, okay, you know, whatever you need, just keep me posted I was pretty well respected at the organization. So I think they knew I wasn't going to do anything silly, like quit working. Yeah. And and I also financially needed to make sure I was, I was taken care of. So I started putting things in place, which I I don't even know exactly what I mean by that, But the first thing I decided to do was get a job, you know, you can, you can get a job. Mm -hmm. So I start looking for a job in Cambodia and I'm doing these interviews and I got pretty far into an interview process to do the same thing I was doing in New York, in Cambodia, making a fraction of the money, mind you. And I just couldn't justify quitting my life to do the exact same thing somewhere else. Like it just didn't make any sense to me. But for months, I struggled with this. So the rest of the, the calendar year, 2016, I tried to figure out what to do with my life. And then I just decided I was done. I was spending so much time thinking about my future instead of just living my future. So one day I'm sitting at Starbucks. I can tell you what Starbucks. It was on 3rd Avenue and 60th Street, which was right around the corner from my apartment. I'm sitting at Starbucks. I pull up Google Flight, and I find the cheapest flight in the month of August from New York to Bangkok. And I booked it. So that ended up being, I'm going to say it was August 30th. That might've been August 31st. And the reason I chose Bangkok is because anything to get to Cambodia, you have to go through another city. You can't fly into Cambodia. So I knew I'd have to go through Hong Kong or I'd have to go through, I think you can fly through um, a couple cities in China, Guangzhou, I believe, or Bangkok. So I knew, and I knew Bangkok. So I'm like, great, I'll book a flight to Bangkok I'll figure it out. So I booked this direct flight from New York to Bangkok round trip coming home around Christmas. And I gave my notice. So by the beginning of February of 2017, I told my organization I was quitting on August 30th. And like I said, I was well respected there. So they let me work out my notice for seven months. I, they hired my replacement. I got her trained, moved her into my office. It was a very civilized transition And I was moving to Cambodia and (laughs) I I thought I, you know, financially I could take a year off without working. You know, I was looking at apartments, rents were $250 a month. I had already spent some time there, so I knew it wasn't expensive, but literally after spending 72 hours in Cambodia, I quit my job to move there, which saying it, I get sounds kind of drastic, right? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah
1: a little bit a yeah
0: little.
1: and then, just as life happens sometimes, a friend of mine i I don't know if it's because I was talking about it so much, but the friend that had suggested I go to Cambodia, he decides to quit his job, take early retirement, and go buy a hotel um My decision seemed very guess the right word would be protracted that I actually put a lot of thought into it. His seemed very just random. Like, Hey Kelly, I'm quitting my job next week and I'm moving. <laughs> and he literally within 30 days gave his notice, quit his job and, and moved overseas. So he asked me if I wanted to help him get his hotel set up, which would allow me to have some income. So I agree. In those months, I think he left the country in March. I wasn't leaving till the end of August. So he started looking around for a hotel. And I think this is funny. He's in Chiang Mai and he's sending me hotel listings of what he wants to buy. And I'm like, nope. And I'm sending him hotel listings in Cambodia. (laughs) Like, Well, I'm not going to Cambodia till June. I'm like, look, we'll just call him Jay at this point. Look, Jay, um... It's, it's like a $100 flight, get your butt down to Cambodia and look at this hotel. So I almost forced the issue. He gets on the flight, flies, flies to Cambodia, looks at the hotel, decides not to buy it. But while he's there, meets a real estate agent who shows him a different property. Logically or honestly, you can't buy property in Cambodia as an American citizen. So he never bought anything. He did a long-term lease. And he opens his hotel, flies to the States for the 4th of July and gives me an offer letter and says, you know, officially, do you want to work for the hotel for a year? So we agreed. I would be in charge of setting up tours for the people. What else did I do when I was there? I managed the vendors. So he did a complete renovation on the hotel. So I managed the vendors. I helped him get in contact with people to do like hand-woven placemats and the food vendors and and things along that line was what I was supposed to do and our agreement was that he would pay for my housing so for the first six months he rented an apartment the second six months he rented a house so he paid for my housing gave me a stipend which for Cambodian standards was very high leave it at that um and I moved to Cambodia not a second thought. I don't remember, like I said, my goodbyes, but I don't remember ever having a second thought about anything.
0: Yeah.
1: And you posted all these on Instagram too, right? Like I remember you. Yeah. Every every day. So I posted every single day that I was away Mm -hmm. and and some of it was the thought provoking other was just what I saw. When I landed, I I made a, a very big effort to immerse myself in Cambodia. So for the first four months, other than a couple trips to Bangkok, which was like I said, a quick 45 minute flight, I didn't leave Cambodia and I saw every temple and explored every inch of Siem Reap. And for those of you not familiar, Siem Reap is known for Angkor Wat, which is a huge archeology span find that they uncovered, I want to say in the fifties or sixties. And there are these huge city-sized temples. And I think they encompass about 50 square miles around Sam Reap, but then there's other temples further away. So I started exploring these other temples where I would you know, take two days and go up to the, the border with Thailand and, and explore those temples that supposedly have landmines beside them. And you're not allowed to leave certain paths and God. <laughs> crazy, crazy, yeah. Just you know, this one temple was called Bengmalaya, Malaya, and it literally caved in on itself. So when you went to Angkor Wat, there were people monitoring you, and they had things roped off that weren't safe. And you know, they had millions upon millions of visitors every year. You drive an hour outside of town to Bengmalaya, Malaya, and you pay this guy five dollars inside a book, and walk into the jungle by yourself. And there's no signs that say this isn't safe. And you can crawl all over these huge rock formations and in the middle of the jungle. It was just absolutely amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Basically the complete opposite of New York City. Right. You know, it it was, I wore flip-flops except when I was in the jungle and needed to climb on something and put sneakers on, I wore flip-flops every day. You know, it was just the exact, you couldn't get more opposite of what I was doing in life. Excuse me. I had to take a drink there. Um, (laughs) So like I said, the first four months I didn't travel a lot. And once the hotel really got up and running, I realized that I wasn't still wasn't doing what I wanted to do in Cambodia. I was living John's dream, Jay's dream. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So I came back to the States for Christmas and did a complete, the word pivot seems really pertinent right now. I did a complete pivot. And when I went back to Cambodia after Christmas, I took my nephew and his girlfriend with me, first of all, and saw things from their perspective. And, and it was amazing to see them thrive in this culture. We went to Bangkok and Toya, which is a town in, in Thailand. And I brought them to Cambodia. And after they left, I had this newfound awe of everywhere I was going. And I really dug in a little deeper. Yeah. So the the, the rest of the time I was in Cambodia was time for me. So I cut my time working at the hotel in half and I did other things. So some of the things I did when I was in Cambodia, first off, I met a Pilates instructor. I love Pilates. I don't know if you're a Pilates fan.
0: Yes, I am. I love, I did Pilates today I did I, it and them Pilates. I love
1: <laughs> my Pilates. So when I got to Cambodia, I asked if there were any Pilates instructors and they introduced me to the Singaporean woman and started doing Pilates with her on a regular basis. And she says, wow, you're really good. Did you ever think of being an instructor? And um, one thing about me, Nikki, is as long as I have a little bit of encouragement, all you have to say is like, oh, you're good at that. Like, yeah, you're right. I am good at that. (laughs) So she says, you know, do you ever think of being an instructor? I'm like, no, I haven't, Fiona. So I start looking into all these Pilates training classes and I find one in Bali. So... That year, this would be 2018 now, I went to Bali for three weeks, end of March, beginning of April, to do my Pilates teacher certification to become a Matt Pilates instructor. And I fell in love with Bali. I fell in love with a lot of places when I was over there. I ended up traveling a lot more. So once I got back to Cambodia in January, I spent some time in Vietnam. I went to Luan Prabang in Laos which is a very magical city if you ever get a chance to be there. Um, I went to Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia, and I did some human resources training, which at the beginning of this talk, I even said I didn't want to have anything to do with human resources. But once I got there and started meeting people, I realized that there was a lot of knowledge that I could instill on these people. So there were a lot of female owned businesses, but the businesses were very small and the women didn't have the skill set to hire and manage employees. So I met a woman from Australia who had an organization on female coaching specifically meant to help these women grow businesses. So I would go to Phnom Penh and do uh, HR training which is what I had done most of my career, except this time there was a translator and that was a new experience. And, and I, I met other people along the way. So one of my very dear friends, Sarah is an Australian woman who lived in Cambodia and started an organization called plastic free Southeast Asia, where she would train people how to be eco-friendly in, in the hotels. And so I befriended her and we got very close and, you know, I, I just did I hate to use the word stuff, but I did stuff the rest of my time in, right. in Cambodia, and and you know made a lot of friends. And in addition to exploring Cambodia itself, that exploration was more inward, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Did a lot of Pilates, did a lot of yoga every night. This is one of my favorite things to do. I called it Cambodian Zumba. so I would walk past this one outdoor courtyard and it was a government building. And there were all these people, all Cambodians. And there was a man who would stand on the stage and play music and they would do these dances. So I started going. And for most of the time, I was the only non Cambodian there every once in a while, another expat or another tourist would show up. It cost me 50 cents which was a thousand real. So 50 cents a day, if you're only making a hundred and some dollars a month, is is a lot of money. I don't think they paid 50 cents, but I did. Mm -hmm. And I would do these outdoor exercises every single night, this hour, hour and a half of Dan's Zumba class. And, and that became my thing, you know, and, and I was very into Pilates. So every night I'd log in and do a practice Pilates class and I'd take notes and I'd figure out what I wanted to do. Um, but just the overall experience in Cambodia was amazing. But the other thing is, you know, I never really set a time frame of how long I wanted to be gone, but I didn't anticipate this being a forever. If that makes okay. sense. Yeah. So the summer starts rolling around, you know, June, July, and I realized I didn't want to be in Cambodia anymore. So I ended up, Deciding to move to Bali. I, it wasn't a crazy thought out adventure, but it also wasn't last minute. So it was okay. something I thought about. There was more Pilates training that I wanted to do there. So I decided I would just get an apartment in Bali and stay there. So I left Cambodia in mid August, I believe, of 2018. And I figured I'd stay in Bali till the end of the year come back to the States for Christmas and figure out what I wanted to do. Should I look for a job, travel through Europe for a couple months? While I looked for a job, kind of in the middle of nowhere was my thought process. Mm -hmm. So I rent this apartment in Bali, moved to Bali and start Pilates training for the reformer. So you've gone through yoga training. So you, right. you'll understand this. You When you're in the midst of training, that's all you're doing every day. So like hours and, and hours. So I would take a Pilates class. I would teach a Pilates class. Then I would do a couple hours worth of training to learn the Pilates moves. And and it became this all-encompassing thing when I was in Bali. Um, Two things happened around the same time. First of all, a man from New Zealand, a Kiwi, I had met earlier in my travels came to live with me in Bali and I started having these bizarre pains. So he thought it was the bed. So he got me a more comfortable bed and just had all these weird pains that I equated to possibly middle age or possibly just doing too much to my body, too much. Yeah. Maybe I was tired. Maybe I pulled something. Um, I did anything that you could think of to try to get rid of the pain. I saw an acupuncturist. I went to a healer. I let me think of some of the other things I did. I went to yoga classes and did myofacial release. They yeah. Something to me where they put something between your toes and light it on fire. Like it's called like mycobuction or something like that. Like oh, I've never heard of that. Fire and smoke coming off of my body. and. <sighs> And so I tried all of these things, never once thought to go to a doctor, which yeah,
0: you're right. is
1: a judgment when it comes to that. I was in, I was in Bali, mm-hmm. um, but I heard everything from, well, if you lost some weight, your back pain would go away. Your body wouldn't hurt anymore. And, you know, I was probably in some of the best shape of my life and, and yeah. okay, that's, that's not right. I had a healer tell me if I got rid of the anger from my childhood, my body would feel better which I thought was interesting because I think I've healed from any anger I've had from right. I'm a relatively happy person, but nothing kind of made sense. And then this, this pain moved from my back to my arm and very quickly, I couldn't even move my right arm. So I'm, I'm with the Kiwi. We refer to his, him as MM. He is asked not to be mentioned anywhere public. Okay. Um, and <laughs> M.M. decides he needs to take me to the hospital. We get to a hospital. We both assume that I broke my arm, so they take me in for x-rays. We're in this Balinese hospital, and first off, MM's laying in the hospital bed because he's hungover as I'm pacing back and forth because I can't sit down because my arm's in so much pain. They, The first thing they do is give you a quote on how much your treatment's gonna cost. And um, we have enough money, that's fine. They take me back for x-rays and then MM and I are sitting there and the doctor comes back and grabs me and takes me out into this public area. And there's a big computer monitor there and there's an x-ray up on the monitor. And he points to this x-ray and just says, all of this is cancer. The surgeon will be back to talk to you in a minute. And I went back and sat beside MM and I said, "I I think they just told me I have cancer. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, like, that's exactly how they told me. The nurse comes back and starts rattling off these questions. Like, when's the last time you ate? When's the last time you drank? I'm still not following along with the process. And the surgeon comes and and basically tells me that he wants to slice me from shoulder to elbow, open me up, take bone out and send it for a biopsy, put pins and screws in to repair my arm. um, Because I have cancer. And I'm going to need somebody to help me. And I look at MM and he's like, I am flying to New Zealand on Tuesday. And I had this epiphany. I had booked a flight to Australia. So I was going to go see a friend's chiropractor. So I book a, I'm like, I'm leaving Wednesday for Australia. And the surgeon's like, I don't think you understand, ma'am. Like, if I'm not operating on you, you need to get home. Like, this is a serious, serious problem. And with that, three days later... I had a letter that said I was fit to fly, and I showed up to a Balinese hospital, all bandaged up, apparently very, very sick, and flew back to the States with cancer. So that has been my life adventure.
0: That's just all so
1: crazy.
0: And then this was in 2018, right?
1: I got back to the country October 10th of 2018, yes. Okay.
0: And then... Did you start treatment in Pittsburgh and go to the
1: doctors and stuff there? So I moved back to town. I haven't lived in Pittsburgh, hadn't lived in Pittsburgh in almost 20 years. So I ended up, um, keep in mind, I didn't have a home or anything. So I got back to the country, moved in with my sister. I had asked her very nicely, just let me get to the country and then we'll call some doctors by the time I landed, she had a whole treatment plan mapped out, of course, my sister did. And the next day I went to see an orthopedic oncologist. No, I went to see an orthopedic surgeon the next day. And he looked at my scans from Bali and just said, I'm, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. And then the one thing he did say was, just keep in mind, people our age don't get bone cancer which was kind of ominous because I thought yeah. cancer in this arm bone. And that led me to believe that it was something more serious on Monday, the following Monday. So a few days later, I went to see an orthopedic oncologist. Um, and it was probably six weeks of a barrage of testing. I, my main treatment team is at Hillman cancer center, which is at the university of Pittsburgh. And after about six weeks, they came up with the diagnosis of multiple myeloma, which is a rare blood cancer. At the time of diagnosis, 85% of my blood was cancerous. And I there's several different kinds of multiple myeloma. Mine happened to have attacked, have attacked my bones. So in addition to being most in my blood... I have these, they call them lytic lesions. So I have these tumors in my bones. So that's what had happened to my arm. The cancer had eaten through my arm bone. Um, And then it turns out, so they schedule an appointment to repair my arm. So this doctor wanted to slice me open. I have like a scar of about a half an inch. They put a balloon in my arm and filled it with dental glue. So that is my arm bone now my humerus cool. they did a bunch of body scans and found out that i had had all my back pain was tumors in my back and i had fractures throughout my spine i have tumors in my left arm my left femur my hip and throughout my skull so these are all things i found out i guess during the surgery ish you know i'm i'm prepping to have surgery on my arm and they come into the prep room, not the operating room. Yeah. And I'm already, they already took my glasses off. I already was kind of woozy from, from getting prepped for anesthesia and they pull my hospital dial down, like over my chest and they start marking up my chest. I'm like, I don't understand what you're doing. They were going to do radiation on my arms. So they marked up my arm and they're like, we have to do radiation on your chest as well because if your back you broke your back so it turns out I'd been traveling around the world for six months with a broken back oh um, my gosh which is completely insane yeah <laughs> so I started seeing a hematologist um they operated on my arm and then they planned out a treatment schedule a very aggressive treatment schedule it would be four to six rounds of two different types of chemo plus some other meds and that was to, I don't want to say trick my body, but it these these the process that they do kind of pushes your body to where it thinks it doesn't have cancer anymore. If they take the meds okay. away, it comes back immediately. So they trick your body to think it doesn't have cancer anymore. And then I had a stem cell transplant, which would have been the end of April
0: 2019.
1: Okay, so a stem cell transplant. They trick your body to think it doesn't have cancer. Then they take your stem cells out, which your stem cells live in your pelvis, your sternum and one other bone in your body. So you have to do all this prep on the stem cells, get the stem cells out of your body. And then they literally, I say they kill you. They, I got so much chemo in two days. Most people would not get that much chemo in a year. Wow they literally open this portal and and pour chemo in your body and they kill every healthy cell in your body in an attempt to kill the, the cancerous cells as well. And then the next day they put your stem cells back in and your stem cells rejuvenate your whole entire body again. So I had that, like I said, April of 2019. It takes a year Based on the research, it takes a year to recover from a stem cell transplant. I didn't believe that, mm-hmm. um, so I lived it. And it took it took the year to kind of get back to feeling normal. So okay. Now I am on regular chemo cycles. So I do chemo pills, which sound easy, but a chemo pill yeah. is, is a pretty... Strength, mine are strong. So when I take a chemo pill, it normally knocks me out for about 24 hours, like nauseous, stomach sicknesses, tired, Um, but it leaves my body pretty quick. So I have about 24 hours, 36 hours a week downtime. I finally had back surgery this September to fix that broken back that I had been traveling with. They felt I was healthy enough to do that. And so I'm recovering from that pretty nicely. And I do my regular treatments.
0: Wow. Have you traveled? You have traveled oh, since yes. this, right? Yes, okay.
1: That's what I thought. So, so after the stem cell transplant, they say the first hundred days. So you have a couple things. You have no immune system since that wipes your body clean of all your cells any, any vaccinations that you got when you were a child are gone. So you have zero immune system. So you have to stay very isolated for a while. So I was in the hospital for 21 days in, in isolation. And I got, I got to the point very quickly when I got out of the hospital that I was very independent. So a lot of things i was still living at my sister's and a lot of, research talks about the first hundred days you should be in isolation and you need 24 hour care. And I think the first day I was home from the hospital, somebody stayed with me. And after that, I'm like walking her dog. And, you know, I, I, I I probably slept, you know, 15 hours a day, but when I was awake, I, I took walks and I, I did things and had an odd relationship with food for a couple months. But other than that, you know, I was feeling good. I did lose my hair. So we ended up shaving my head when I was in the hospital, which was the first time my hair fell out. So I looked, you looked at me and you knew I was sick. I looked weak. I was bald. But I convinced my doctors at day 61, I think. I convinced my doctors that they should let me leave the country. So everybody knew From the beginning of this, everybody knew I was diagnosed, everybody being my treatment team, knew I was diagnosed in Bali, knew I was supposed to go to Australia. And so I convinced my doctor to let me fly to Australia. I think I left 86 days after my transplants. And I have a very dear friend who I met along my travels. He lives in Brisbane. So I went and stayed with him for six weeks that summer and rehabbed at his house. And we traveled. So, you know, we went to Tasmania and we traveled throughout. He lives outside of Brisbane. So we'd go into the city. And I got to spend a lot of, of a lot of time in Australia. So that was a great way to heal. Mm-hmm. My sister mailed my chemo pills to Australia so I could stay as long as possible. Eventually had to come back. And then, so I would have got back the beginning of September of twenty. 19. Okay. Wasn't sure what I was going to do in life. You know, wasn't, I mean, I had a job interview and they asked me what I had been doing. And I started talking about cancer and treatment and it was very obvious. I wasn't equipped to have a job. I was completely mentally unstable. So the better I felt physically, the worse I felt mentally. So we got me in therapy and, and I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't figure anything out. So a year ago I was completely depressed and and couldn't see a path forward in life. So I have this bright idea that I'm going to go back to Asia and um, ended up, I mean, it's going to sound easier than it was, but I ended up figuring out that if I followed certain steps that they would release more chemo pills because they wouldn't normally only release three pills at a time. So I would piece together about an 11 week trip. And so I left the beginning of January, 2020, and I traveled till the end of March and got to go back to Asia. And I don't want to say close the loops, but I I got to finish things instead of leaving Asia so quickly because of cancer. You know, I, I went back to Thailand and saw some places I didn't see. I went back to Cambodia and saw all of my friends there. I went to Llan Prabang. Like I said before, it's such a magical place. I wanted to experience that again. I saw some friends in Singapore. I ended up going back to Bali and retracing the last week I was in Bali before I got the diagnosis. And that was just such an amazing healing time. I I wrote a lot and cried a lot. And just paste it all out but at the same time COVID starts running rampant right so we started hearing about COVID when I was in Cambodia which would have been early February and it came up in conversation you know in Luan Prabang they took our temperatures on the plane and Singapore anytime you went somewhere you had to sign a log book saying that you were there and it started I don't want to say it got scary because it, at the time it wasn't scary but I started thinking I probably shouldn't be traveling in asia Mm -hmm. so my friend reggie who i had spent the summer before had met me in singapore and he's like why don't you just come back to australia so after bali instead of coming back to the states hindsight is 2020 maybe i should have done that um i went to australia for three weeks at the end of the trip and spent some time with him and his sons and his ex-wife they're all I had met them all the first time I was there, but got to actually form some relationships. My friend Sarah, who lived in Cambodia when I was there, had moved to Sydney, so I spent some time with her in Sydney and spent the last three weeks there. Everything was fine until the last week. Things started getting a little crazy with COVID, and um, I ended up being kind of a convoluted last couple days, but Delta was able to switch my flights and they got me out of Sydney. I was the last flight out of Sydney yeah. before they closed their borders.
0: I was yeah, I was just gonna say was we're borders starting to close down and stuff. Yes. Yeah. The
1: last few days was very hectic. It was okay, we can get you on this flight. We don't know if the borders will still be open, but that's the only flight we can get you on. And Reggie and I had to have a long talk like okay there's a possibility I'm not getting out what does that look like so we were those people who went to the grocery store and stocked up his entire house in case I got stuck there you know I had called my doctors periodically so my doctors knew I was there and it was just if you get stuck we'll figure it out you know how we're gonna that was my big thing it's if I get stuck how am I gonna have treatment you know they were telling me, yeah. you don't get out now you might not get out for six months which obviously now we know is true and and even saying goodbye to reggie at the airport i had to fly from brisbane to sydney and they were talking about closing the state borders so i said what if what if i get to sydney and i can't leave and now you can't come get me and and how are we going to handle this and you know i had my friend sarah there and, and actually your father has some friends in sydney that he had already arranged if i needed a bedroom if i got stuck in sydney
0: yeah i was
1: gonna stay there but i had to fly back to la and la nobody asked you any questions about where you'd been or what you were doing or anything which was really bizarre mm-hmm. and i had to fly through minnesota and by minnesota it was a ghost town there was nobody traveling and then i got back to the states or back to pennsylvania Nobody would pick me up from the airport because nobody knew what was going on. And and I had been in Asia and I had been traveling. and, And it was a very bizarre experience with COVID. So finally, my sister agreed to pick me up. And she met me at the airport and wiped me down with Lysol pads and wiped my suitcase down and made me sit in her... Car SUV, she sat in the driver's seat and I had to sit in the seat furthest away from her, so I wasn't close to her. And she dropped me off. I had rented a hotel for two weeks because I didn't, you know, I was living with my mother now and didn't want to infect anybody, or they didn't want to infect me. So I stayed, yeah, at old school nights in where like the doors go to the outside. Okay, because I didn't want to stay in a hotel and walk through the hallways or I didn't know what to do but I have to tell you the weirdest thing is so I had just been traveling for 11 weeks it was very emotional this this the last end of this especially it was very very emotional and I land and nobody would touch me and nobody would hug me and and it became this big narrative of quarantine and yeah. And sitting in this hotel room by myself and, and just the year before it had been almost exactly a year since I was in isolation after my stem cell transplant. And now I'm isolating in a hotel by myself. It was, yeah. And I, and I get it, you know, now that I look back, nobody had an information, nobody knew what was going on, but there's still a lot of emotions there about that.
0: Right. I know that's, it is. So you think back, like with the beginning of COVID and everyone was just so scared to do anything, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, you know, people didn't want to touch each other and you, you still need that, you know, I
1: don't know. It It (laughs) is. Yes. You know, I, I I get it. People would leave things on my doorstep. Right. Like my best friend, the reason I chose that hotel is, You know, my mom lived 10 minutes one way. My sister lived 10 minutes in the other direction. And my best friend literally lived over the hill. And the one day I get this text message from her. Hadn't seen her in three months. And she's like, I left something on your doorstep. And she had brought me dinner, which was so lovely. Yeah. But it's like, I haven't seen you in three months. Like, yeah. Like we, that human connection was, it was a lot. Like I can still remember Mm -hmm. the first time somebody hugged me after quarantine after and it wasn't when I got out of quarantine it was probably June yeah you know, that, that we weren't touching each other and and that was a big you know that was a a big yeah you're right we need that yeah so then
0: when you were back did you start putting together your podcast
1: and my life writing a book and all this? So I wrote a lot when I was traveling and ended up writing, well, there was like five or six posts that I wrote about my story about finding out how I had cancer and, and MM who I was traveling with in Bali and, and I'll give credit to your dad. Um, <laughs> <necessarily>, <laughs> like, I think you should be saving these stories. I think you have a a book here or something. And I jokingly was like, why are you going to publish me or something? And I'm like, oh, shit, he does know people. Maybe I'm curious about this. So I've always wanted to write a book. I've been talking about writing a book since I was probably 20 years old. And I go through spurts of writing. So the story never made sense. But that trip that I was on, I did so much healing. Every week, I talked to my therapist. So I've had the same therapist for a year now, but every week on that trip, her and I'd have these conversations. It didn't matter where I was time-wise. So I was 12 hours ahead of her, 14 hours ahead of her. We'd have these conversations and every week I'd have an epiphany of life or I'd start thinking about things that I could do. So before I started the trip, like I said, I had that job interview and didn't know what I could offer anybody. And now we're sitting in Singapore and I'm talking to my friend Fiona who lives in Singapore and we're talking about how they stagger their work shifts and how they there's a maximum amount of people that can get on a subway car and, and what Singapore is doing for COVID because they've had other pandemics and, and epidemics. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. all I want to do is be in a boardroom and sit at a boardroom table and outline what a a company needs to do to get through COVID. And that was the first professional thought I had had in a year. And it's like I, I started to heal and every day I could feel myself healing. So by the time I got back into the country, I had all these ideas. So even now I'll tell you that I think when I was in quarantine those two weeks, I laid in bed and cried the whole two weeks But if I look back at the calendar that I kept those two weeks that I was in quarantine, I did some crazy productive things. I, Mm -hmm. I bought a car, which I haven't owned a car in 20 years. So I wasn't allowed to buy it because of the COVID quarantine, but I arranged to buy a car while I was in quarantine, which is huge because I literally haven't driven in so long. I had to get a new driver's license last year. I decided to get my MBA and applied for an MBA with an entrepreneurship specialization and started that right after I got out of quarantine, they expedited my application. I started doing some HR consulting for two different companies um, to get my mind working again. I wrote a lot and started this idea that I wanted to write a book and build a website. And then in writing that book, I thought a podcast kind of made sense to start putting a podcast together to figure out how the chapters would go in order. So in the middle of a pandemic, I finished half of an MBA. I just did my final last week to get halfway through. I did all these productive things from a professional perspective. Like I said, I'm writing the book. I started the podcast. I had back surgery and recovered (laughs) from that. And last week, or I guess not last week, Yesterday was my first day out of quarantine from COVID, so it's been a a, a monumental
0: 2020. Yeah, has. Yes. Yes. I know. I'm keeping up with your podcast. I'm really enjoying Thank it. Thank you. I'm glad
1: somebody is listening. It's it's oh, people are listening. It's good. It's it's <laughs> is vulnerable the word I'm looking for. It's hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we've talked about this. You've, you've done some very personal episodes as well. There's some times that, that you throw things out there and, and I'm still self editing at times, meaning, well, I don't know if I should tell that story about that person. I don't want to, I don't want to drag them into my story. So right. I, I do reach out to people and, and ask if I can use their names. And most people say No. <laughs> There's a lot of initials when I tell story in a podcast. Um, but the book is starting to come together. So I don't, I'm done working, or I'm done in, in school until the beginning of January. So I really want to concentrate on getting the chapters in order and and I'll start season. I have a couple more episodes of the podcast, but I'll start season two of the podcast in January and hopefully get the book Together and, and try to shop it around and see what happens.
0: That's exciting. It's very exciting. I'll put um, your the show notes in the show notes um, where they can find your podcast okay. and also um, your Instagram. Is your Instagram it's private up, carry public? Carry on with Kelly. Okay. Yeah, and that too, and they can right. follow you. And I wanted um, you have episode eight just came today, but um, episode seven. I really you know, that hit home, like at the end, um, we already, we talked about this, but how you say, um, you said, we all have a story to tell. Someone's outside doesn't always match their insides or what they're going through. And I really like that. Like we need to be kind to each other. You don't know what someone's going through. Like in the episode you said, you know, did someone mention about your hair and like, Oh, wow. Everybody loves my hair.
1: Yeah. And they think everybody loves my hair. Yeah, but It has grown back super, super, super curly. And it's, 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 it's good hair. Like I will tell you that I've always had good hair, but it's good hair. And, and when people first started complimenting me on it, the first thing I would always say was like, oh, it's chemo hair. And because I thought they were just trying to be nice because I still thought I looked sick. And I think right now, I don't look sick. If you saw me on the street, you would never know anything was going on with my life. And I think that's why when I did that episode last week, November was a month filled with doctor's appointments. And it's not because anything is wrong. It's just because every doctor's appointment follow-up happened for November. So I had my regular oncology appointment and I had to see my hematologist and I had to get another round of immunizations. And I saw my surgeon for a follow-up and it's a lot of, oh, great. Your numbers look great. Perfect. Let's get me off the chemo. Well, no, if we take you off the chemo, your numbers will go up and your back looks great. Perfect. Now can I start doing this? No, it's going to be six more months of rehab before you can do any physical activity. And, you know, so from the outside, you see me walking down the street, those, there they weren't bad doctor's appointments, but I have health issues. You know, I'm, I'm dying. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a word I haven't used during this podcast, but I was given three to five years to live and that was two years ago. So I, I don't, and I, I don't want people to feel bad about that because I'm living a, an amazing life and I'll live the next however many years, amazingly. But you can't look at somebody and just assume. Yeah. That I think that's my biggest pet peeve when people look at me and they're like, Oh my God, you look so great. Good for you. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's great that I look good, you know, but you know what I've been through today and this week and this month and this year. And, and even the the COVID diagnosis hit me in a different way because I just thought I had a cold And I've been really careful these past 10 months since I thought Mm -hmm. I just had a sniffle. I go to the office once a week for this consulting job. I went to the office with a sniffle and wore a mask. And one of the women that I work with is pregnant. And when I tested positive, I had these huge, all this guilt that what if I got her sick and, and she's pregnant and her baby shower was this weekend. And what if she had to cancel the baby shower? And so this whole COVID thing threw me for a loop that I wasn't expecting. And I, I was sick, but in the whole scheme of things, it was not a serious case, you know, tightness of the chest, but not anything too bad and I slept a lot yeah. and had sniffles and a cough. Like, but it was two weeks. It was a stressful situation that I didn't anticipate ending the year with. Right. So, yeah, I, I think we all have to remember, you know, we, we all have our own narrative of of everything in life. And let's just use COVID as an example. You know, we've all, it's affected all of our lives. Most, most of us adversely in some capacity, but we don't know what each other is going through. You know, I have people mm-hmm. overseas that their lives are, you know, COVID's done and their lives are back to normal and, and they don't want to hear when they call me, we're locked down again. And, you know, I can't get on a plane and go anywhere. And I know that I know in the whole scheme of things, that sounds like that's not a big deal, but travel was such a big part of my life. And, and I want it to continue to be a big part of my life and to know I can't get on a plane for the foreseeable future and live what minimal time I have left is, is, Disheartening, and we all have those situations.
0: Yeah. Ugh. This is thank you so much for coming. Well, on. you're
1: welcome. I hope I didn't ramble too much. I, no, it's
0: all so good and interesting, and I liked catching up because it's it been way, been too, way long. too long.
1: Maybe when they. Open the well, thank- maybe when they open what? the borders we can actually meet up
0: I know I know that would- I know we yes. have to hopefully
1: I have a car now and- I can road trip
0: oh good <laughs> <laughs> well again thank you so much for coming on and I will leave all of you the notes and where everyone can find you okay, in my show thank notes. you
1: so much for having
0: me Thanks. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this latest episode on Fit, Fun, and Frazzled with my cousin Kelly. She is so amazing and so inspirational. I had so much fun recording this episode with her, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks.